Hello and welcome to The Gold Podcast. I'm your host, Helena Beer, the editor of Gold, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by my brand new co-host, Isabel O'Brien, the assistant editor of Gold. How are you, Isabel? Hello, Helena. Yes, I'm very well, very excited for my very first show as the new co-host on the podcast. How are you doing? Yes, I'm very well also um, and good to have you with us. You're obviously a familiar voice on the podcast with all of your interviewing. Um, But yes, great to have you um, on the permanent hosting roster, as it were. So should we get cracking? Absolutely. We've got a very exciting interview this week that we are looking forward to sharing. I know you were really honoured to have a chance to speak to this particular guest. Oh, I definitely was. Reno Rapoli is currently head of external R&D and chief scientist at GSK Vaccines. So it was a real privilege to speak with him, especially as he's retiring from GSK next month. He is. Very important detail. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing about everything he has to say on the topic of vaccines, how they've revolutionized over the past 30 years. And of course, lots about his professional journey and focuses as well. I know meningitis is one of the main areas he's interested in. So will that be coming up in the interview? Absolutely, it will. So um, tomorrow, 5th of October is actually World Meningitis Day. So it was perfectly timed to talk briefly about meningitis with Reno and the importance of research and development in that area, as well as everything that you've just mentioned as well in terms of his professional journey. Mm, Well, lots to look forward to in that. But first, before we get into all of that, let's take a look at the past week in news you might have missed. So, Isabel, what's been happening in the world of pharma recently? Well, something that caught my eye this week was actually a new campaign from Teva called Honestly HD. So the company is actually raising awareness for Huntington's disease or HD Korea, a condition associated with Huntington's affecting around 90% of the patients diagnosed. So the physical manifestation of the disease is caused by excess dopamine in the brain, for anyone that doesn't know, and this provokes involuntary movements affecting the body. And while the company has set up a website and a Twitter account to basically spread awareness around the management and treatment of these kinds of um, these kinds of symptoms. That's right. So Michelle Roberts, Senior Director for Medical Patient Advocacy at Teva, said the progressive nature of HD can create feelings of isolation for patients and their families and makes planning ahead crucial. Our hope is that in addition to providing information and resources to aid in managing HD career symptoms and planning for the future, Honestly HD fosters a supportive and inspiring community so patients and their families don't feel alone. You might not have missed this next bit of news. It has been all over the papers, um, but this landmark occasion calls for some recognition, we think. Last week, Esai and Biogen announced positive results from their trial of lecanemab, the first Alzheimer's drug in a generation to successfully meet primary endpoints in a phase three clinical trial. During the trial, the drug was able to slow the rate of decline in participants' memory, thinking and function by 27% over an 18-month period and was also found to help participants with their usual day-to-day activities. Hmm. Well, yeah, that's certainly a great step forward in developing a first-of-its-kind treatment for this disease. The global figure for people with Alzheimer's is really set to grow over the next few years. So 139 million by 2050 is the prediction without an effective treatment option. So very positive news, really, when you think about uh, figures like that. Yeah, absolutely. 
And in other news, um, I don't know if you've heard this one, Helena, but Europe's supply of generic medicines could be under threat. Ah, do tell me more. Slightly less positive. Um, (laughs) So from the conflict in Ukraine, there have been pricing pressures across the region and manufacturers have been experiencing a whole host of issues impacting their output. So Medicines for Europe have cited that sourcing raw materials, the rate of inflation and record energy prices have all been problematic for this vital cost in the pharma industry. Another thing the trade group noted is that these issues are threatening to undermine medicine supply and the industry's wider efforts to invest in manufacturing in Europe. Now, the group is requesting that pharma be excluded from demand reduction measures related to gas supply, as it states any shutdown of production, even temporary, would have detrimental effects on the supply of medicines to patients and would demand a significant effort and long delays to resume operations. Hopefully a solution will be found there. But to finish on a slightly lighter note, Moderna is the latest company to join the UK's Bioindustry Association, taking the trade association's membership to over 500 companies. Commenting on its new membership, Darius Hughes, the UK general manager at Moderna, said, Moderna's vision is to harness the power of mRNA science to create a new generation of transformative vaccines and medicines for patients. And we have plans to expand our presence in the UK through investments in research and development. The UK has a world-class life sciences and research community, and we recognise the importance of working with the BIA and its members to ensure the benefits and ambitions of the UK life sciences vision are realised in practice. Absolutely fantastic to see the BIA reach that milestone. And yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how them and Moderna work together on projects in the future. Well, indeed. Now, as we mentioned, Helena recently had the pleasure of speaking to Reno Rapoli about his long and distinguished career within the pharmaceutical industry and vaccine development. Indeed, I did. So by way of introduction, Reno is known globally for his work in vaccines and immunology, and he's currently head of external R&D and chief scientist at GSK Vaccines based in Siena in Italy. He also holds the titles of Honorary Professor of Vaccinology at Imperial College London and Extraordinary Professor of Molecular Biology at the University of Siena, where he earned his PhD in Biological Sciences. He's also been named the third most influential person worldwide in the field of vaccines by Terrapin in 2013. He's also received countless awards, such as a gold medal by the Italian president, very impressive, is a member of several US, UK, Italian and European academies of science. He also has no fewer than 765 published works in peer-reviewed journals and is a founder of the GSK Vaccines Institute for Global Health, is among the world scientific leaders dedicated to the sustainability of global health. Indeed, but most notably, over his career, he has introduced several novel scientific concepts, genetic detoxification, cellular microbiology, reverse vaccinology and pangenome, to name a few, um, as well as developing several licensed vaccines for conditions such as meningitis and pandemic influenza. His work in vaccine R&D has formed the foundation for how vaccines are developed today, a phenomenal achievement. Indeed it is. So without further ado, let's have a listen. Reno, hi. It's an absolute privilege to be speaking with you today. Welcome to the Gold Podcast. Hi, it's my pleasure to talk to you today. Excellent. Glad to hear it. So we've got lots of great questions to get through, so let's jump straight in. 
Um, so many of our listeners will know you through your work in vaccines, but by way of introduction, can you briefly tell us how your career initially started out and what it was about vaccines that appealed to you in particular? Well, I think to uh, explain that, basically I need to go back to my time at the University of Siena when I was studying biology. I had the privilege to listen to uh, uh, as Albert Sabin, he was giving a talk at the university, and this was in the middle seventies. I could listen to the uh, this great scientist that was telling us as how the vaccination against poliomyelitis uh, was eliminating a disease that at that time was uh, basically killing or uh, uh, basically giving permanent terrible terminal sequelae to uh, people. And that simple vaccination was basically eliminating all that and canceling this disease. And I was fascinated by the impact that this man was having. Uh, I was a student. I had a lot of uh, uh, people uh, around me that I, I could see they had the disease, they couldn't walk well, they were devastated. So basically, I was fascinated by this and I had the fortune that in Siena there was an institute uh, that was making vaccines for Italy at that time, the name of Sclavo. So uh, after my postdoc was, uh, uh, I mean, I really wanted to go back to the place where uh, we could have an impact on people. And that's uh, the way I started uh, my work on vaccines. That's fascinating. Um, and it's really nice that you had that kind of inspirational figure in your working life from the start. That's that's really not good to hear. Um, so obviously, we saw an acceleration in vaccine development during COVID-19 and mRNA vaccines gaining prominence. But how would you say, I know it's quite a, a broad question, but how would you say that vaccines have changed since the early days of your work? What what kind of progress has been made, for example, with your reverse vaccinology 2.0 model? Well, since I started making vaccines, which was basically very early 80s, uh, the, has been a huge revolution or several revolutions in the field of vaccines. Uh, up to that time, the vaccines have been made uh, basically by the what I call the empirical way of making vaccines. So uh, that goes back to Louis Pasteur uh, at the end of 1800, basically. The, and the way vaccines used to be made were basically by growing pathogens, bacteria, viruses, parasites. And uh, then uh, they were either killed and injected or attenuated or injected and injected. And uh, at the end of 1970s, basically uh, making vaccines with those technologies had, had brought to a place where it was impossible to make vaccines against the remaining infectious diseases. And so uh, we needed new technologies and new technologies came. 1980 was uh, uh, recombinant DNA and we got new vaccines like hepatitis B, that which was nearly impossible with the previous technologies. And then we got like a conjugation. We could make all the vaccines against meningitis and pneumococcus and uh, typhoid fever. And then came the genomics, the genomic revolution, which we led through reverse vaccinology. And then new vaccines became possible. Uh, and more recently, we got the adjuvants, RNA vaccines, all revolutions 
uh, all technological revolutions and basically allowed us to conquer new diseases. And so as I've been so fortunate to live through uh, all these uh, series of technological revolutions that have really allowed us to conquer more and more diseases. So, uh, and the COVID is the last one through the RNA vaccine. So basically it's been an incredible period and uh, a fascinating period to live through. Absolutely, yeah, the change that's been seen is just phenomenal um, and great that you could be a part of that. Um, so alongside um, the, the kind of uh, developments that you've mentioned there, what do you consider to be your greatest achievement in your, uh, what can only be described as distinguished career? Well, there have been many things. I'm happy about all of them. But there is uh, one thing which is, uh, I consider the one uh, that is really the most important is the fact that is uh, the ability to use uh, the genomic uh, approach, basically or use the, the genome of the pathogen basically to develop a vaccine, something that we, I called at some point, reverse vaccinology. We basically, using the genome, we were able to make a vaccine which was impossible up to uh, the day before. Uh, so, and now that vaccine is having an impact uh, on the uh, eliminating the disease in many countries. So uh, the, the impact is, is beautiful and I'm happy about that. But the other thing is that this was the first vaccine developed through the genome by reverse vaccinology. And since then, uh, there is no vaccine which is developed without using reverse vaccinology. Everything starts from the sequence of the genome of a virus, of a bacterium, of a parasite, and then we make vaccines out of that. So basically, has been a, an incredible change, uh, both for the impact on meningococcus and on because of the uh, change the way of making vaccines, basically. That's fascinating. Thank you. That was a, a really great overview there. You mentioned meningitis there, and we're chatting today ahead of World Meningitis Day. I know you're a real advocate for tackling meningitis and have dedicated much of your life to the research and development in this area, as you've just mentioned. But I guess my question is, why meningitis in particular? What was it about that condition that, that really appealed to you in terms of research and development? Well, meningitis is something that has been always in my mind from the very early on when I started to make vaccines. Uh, the reason is that uh, it's a scary disease, is well known, or at least at that time was extremely well known, uh, to not only to the med in the medical sector, but every every parent uh, will be afraid of meningitis because people knew. Uh, how devastating this disease is. is a, a disease that basically, even today, kills more than 200,000 people uh, <clears throat> worldwide. Uh, and the thing about meningitis, especially meningococcal meningitis, is that uh, it strikes uh, children and adolescents that are very, uh, I mean, they're healthy. I mean, you have a person that is perfectly healthy and in a, uh, then it gets uh, like some mild fever or uh, <clears throat> some fever-like, uh, fever uh, flu-like symptoms and the 
could be nothing, but if it's meningitis, in a few hours that person could be in intensive care and 24 hours can die. And that's devastating for the person, for the family, for the society. Uh, whatever it happens, a disaster. If you see one case, basically you say, uh, I don't want to see another one. And, and so it's such a tremendous disease that you really uh, <clears throat> want to not to see it. Yeah. Definitely. Um, so during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, vaccines were obviously at the forefront of the public's consciousness. And it's arguably more so than than ever before, at least in, in my my memory. Um, so what do you think the lasting impact of COVID-19 will be on the vaccine landscape in terms of vaccine fatigue, but also routine vaccination schedules um, and, and the like? Well, indeed, during the pandemic, we, had, we lived through a period where vaccines have been so much in the news, uh, in the interest of every single person on the planet, that I think that uh, now even a child in, in the, uh, knows about vaccines more than I do, more or less, because, because we've been talking about them so much. But uh, there, is, uh, there are two consequences. One is that everybody, uh, lay people, uh, the people in, in, in the health system or uh, policy makers and politicians have seen the power of vaccination. The power of vaccination has been able, during the, basically this period, the COVID-19 period, we've been able to uh, develop vaccines in 10 months. Uh, and these vaccines have kind of been a miracle of science and of global collaboration, uh, they, uh, I mean, has been calculated, they saved uh, 20 million deaths. If we have used them more uh, widely, we could have saved another 20 million. Um, they saved the economy. I mean, the pandemic at the beginning was burning more than 500 billion uh, a month. And now the economy is coming back because uh, uh, we have vaccines and we are vaccinated and we, uh, and we also lost our freedom because we're locked in our houses uh, because of the pandemic and now we have freedom again because we are vaccinated. So I think the power of vaccine on health, economics and freedom has been huge. And so that's very important. Uh, so, and I hope we, people will continue to remember how important vaccines are. That's uh, one positive aspect. The, there is also a negative aspect about the pandemics. Basically, we have been so focused on COVID-19 that we forgot to vaccinate against many other diseases. Uh, in <clears throat> the agenda of vaccinating the routine vaccination in low-income countries and even high-income countries has been basically uh, forgotten or not, did not have the priority it should have. And we, the vaccination against meningitis, against measles, mumps, rubella, diphtheria, portacid, have gone down. Uh, and so there is, um, we need to get back and brought, brought, bring those uh, in the priority of, of the, uh, in, in health. Because right now we are risking that the decreased vaccination that we, are, we have seen during the pandemic is accumulating a lot of susceptible people. And some of the diseases that were, including meningitis, that we thought were gone, they may come back more than we had before, just because we are not vaccinated enough. Yeah, absolutely. And what do you think is, is one key thing that 
the pharma industry can do in order to um, help kind of realign those priorities and and get vaccination um, and routine vaccinations in particular back on track? Well, uh, pharma uh, obviously should make the vaccines available, should communicate, but cannot do it alone. Uh, has to do by has to be done by WHO, has to be done by all the uh, 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 public health system in every single country, basically, uh, they need to align, communicate together, uh, and uh, prepare the logistics to uh, really bring the vaccination back at the levels we had we had before. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, in terms of um, the future, um, what would you say are your predictions for the future of vaccines? Where do you think the the greatest sort of investment and innovation is needed? Well, for the future, I think what we've seen so far is that vaccines, uh, I think we have seen the value of vaccines. We have seen that during the COVID, uh, and we have seen that basically uh, vaccines have been able to eliminate uh, all the diseases that used to kill millions of children just a century ago. Uh, so vaccines have done a great job in eliminating the disease of the children. Uh, now, uh, they're starting today with the new technologies to uh, take care of some of the, the, the diseases of the uh, adults and elderly. But I think in the new society, especially in aging society, we're going to need more and more vaccines uh, that are going to keep healthy the people the, the, when they age. So we need uh, to develop more and more vaccines for the adults, for the elderly. We need to have vaccines for, uh, to make sure that we don't get into another pandemic. And we know the risk of getting there is high uh, unless we, prepare, uh, we are really prepared for uh, emerging infections. So I think we need to, uh, for the future, we need, we need to have vaccines, uh, more vaccines for, or I would say vaccines for any age in, from children, adolescents, adults, uh, and elderly. We need to have uh, vaccines to pre be prepared for emerging infections. We need new types of vaccines. For instance, uh, the vaccines have been against COVID have been great. They eliminated severe disease, but unfortunately, they are not able to uh, eliminate infections. Uh, and so I think we need vaccines that will target the, uh, our mucosal sites so that we'll uh, be able to prevent not, not only disease, but also infections of respiratory diseases uh, like influenza and COVID. So, uh, and then obviously there's a dream that one day we'll have vaccines that will be able to cure uh, diseases and cancer, for instance, one of, one of the dreams. And uh, since uh, during my career, I've seen many things which were impossible to become possible. I hope that also treating diseases like cancer with vaccines one day, hopefully not too long, is going to be possible. That would be amazing. I was going to ask you then um, what you think the time scale is on that. So when when do you think that we might be able to see um, a cure for cancer via a vaccine? Is is it possible to put a time scale on it? <laughs> Well, I'll say it's, it's not possible for me now to say when it's going to happen. The only thing I, I can say is that the, the pace of innovation and breakthrough innovation and the ability to conquer things that which were not possible uh, before has been accelerating. 
uh, and for sure has been accelerating enormously during the last 40 years when I've been in the vaccine field. Uh, and uh, we have a, a number of new technologies, a number of new things, uh, tools that are becoming available. Uh, so I believe these things will, will happen soon. I uh, cannot predict the date, but I hope it's going to be not, not too far in the future. Brilliant. That's great. Um, so as far as I'm aware, you have a retirement on the horizon. My, my question would be, what legacy do you think you will leave or do you hope to leave in the worlds of, of vaccines and pharmaceuticals once you retire? Well, I, I think uh, the, I mean, the legacy I, I hope I'm going to leave is that the passion for what you do, uh, basically that's what you need. If you have something you have a passion for, that's going to happen. Nothing is impossible. You should never basically give up on things, even if temporarily you believe you don't have the tools. Because I've seen many times that the things which were not, uh, I mean, people told me it was very impossible. A few, maybe a few years later become possible because breakthroughs and innovation. So I think uh, things are possible. We need, need to have people that will have passion to solve the problems and they will solve the problems if they if they really believe in that. That's great. And yeah, I think, as you said earlier, all of the different um, ways of making vaccines and, and how that has shifted, you've proved that, that nothing is impossible. Um, you just need to to wait for the wait for the science to develop. And I think that's that's the beauty of this field, isn't it? It's always developing. Um, there's almost always so much uh, potential. Absolutely. Um, so will you continue to, to do work in, in the vaccine space um, as, as a kind of passion project uh, once you've retired or, or is it uh, a kind of uh, you're just going to spend some time looking after yourself and en enjoying your retirement? Well, I'm going to retire from uh, a company, uh, uh, from managing a big, big organization. Um, yeah. Which, which, where well, I had the pleasure to have the resources uh, and the ability to work with thousands of people that made uh, some many of the dreams possible because the company allows you to have the investment, the resources, and the power, uh, manpower, and uh, economic power, basically to uh, deliver uh, the vaccines. Uh, so I'm going to retire from this, but I'm. My passion is still there and still as high as used to have when I was started. So uh, I already started an academic lab where I'm doing monoclonal antibodies against bacteria resistant to antibiotics. Um, also doing monoclonal antibodies against COVID for therapy. Um, and uh, I think I'll continue to work uh, closer to the science, uh, less to the, than to the management. Uh, and I think I'll continue to follow my passion uh, to, to do science, to solve problems, to make the, the, to improve the quality of life and to make people healthier. That is such a great note to end on. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Reno, and sharing such brilliant insights into your career and the vaccine landscape and meningitis in particular ahead of World Meningitis Day. It's been a real pleasure and we wish you all the best for the future. It's my pleasure. Thank you. It's been really nice to talk to you. 
Well, what a fascinating insight into Reno's career that was. Like you, I loved that his passion for vaccines stemmed from the passion of a professor at university. It just really does go to show the power of a good mentor. I know it can be so important to have that influence from a young age and and who knows where it can lead. In this case, it led to incredible um, results. The reverse vaccinology model has made the impossible possible and has, as Reno so humbly put it, allowed us to conquer more and more diseases. Mm, Yeah, the results really speak for themselves and it is an absolutely incredible legacy. And Reno's mantra of never go up on things. Well, I think that's always a brilliant takeaway, isn't it, for all of us? It is indeed. We will be taking that on board ourselves, I'm sure. So Reno may be retiring from GSK in the near future, but his passion for science and innovation remains. So I doubt it will be the last that we hear from this vaccination trailblazer. I would expect not. And sadly, that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you so much to Reno, of course, for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure to hear his story. And thank you to you for listening indeed so do be sure to rate comment and most importantly subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on next week's episode where isabel will be speaking to the life sciences influencer paul sims chief executive at inpatient health they'll be delving into the complex topic of farmers reputation so not one to be missed it's such an interesting one yeah a very interesting topic and a very interesting guest so be sure to tune in Until then, though, that is goodbye from us. Take care and we will see you next week. We will indeed. See you then. 